Sagar and Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. This week, we have a really great, almost before the election episode with Chris Buskirk. Chris is the editor and publisher of American Greatness, which is a pro-Trump, pro-sort of national populism publication that was founded during the 2013-2016 presidential election. So this is a pretty contrarian episode. Because we were sort of thinking, you know, what did we want to sort of talk about with Chris? This could have been a very straightforward episode that's sort of like making the case for Trump in October 2020. But what clearly comes out in this conversation is that Chris and his actual center for American greatness has been doing a lot of polling. And Chris actually believes that there's a very strong possibility that the polls showing that President Trump is on track to be resoundingly defeated are actually wrong. So this is a great episode to sort of talk with Chris about why he thinks the polls are wrong, why he thinks it's very probable that President Trump is going to win re-election, and then what he actually thinks from his sort of perspective President Trump's second term agenda would actually be. So I think this is a great episode to have if we're trying to think about what does the world look like on November 4th if the polls are wrong, regardless of whether or not you want President Trump to win re-election or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and even if you think Trump is going to lose, if you're more aligned within that perspective, there's a lot to be learned here, both in terms of it's always good to be slightly skeptical of polling. I try to do that on Rising as well. But here with Chris, we get into some of the fractures within the GOP, some of the problems that Trump had when it, during his governance and kind of where it has left him vulnerable. And then if he's going to have a second term, what it must look like for it to actually be successful. So overall, Chris is a deep thinker on many of these issues. Um, he's somebody whose perspective that we really value. And I think overall, it's a worthwhile conversation no matter where you fall on the political spectrum. So Marshall, I before we get to that, uh, we need to remind everybody to please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. And if you write a review, you can ask us a question there within your written review. We'll answer it live here on the air. What is the question for today? And as always, everyone, you are sending in so many questions. I know we are behind both on our iTunes replies, our email replies. So what we are going to do here is the day of the election, next Tuesday, we're going to have a special Q&A episode. We're actually going to have next Tuesday's show air on Monday, so we have a really special guest, which you guys are really going to enjoy. But the reminder here is send in your pre-election questions. We're going to answer as many as it takes to get through those there. But on to today's question, which comes from Jeff from Central Florida. As a 2020 college graduate from Florida, I can't help but wonder what the long-term repercussions are on Generation Z. Do you guys think this is just another 2008? That this is just another aspect of life for Gen Zers to overcome? Or is there merit to a much more deeply cynical view about what's going on here? I can't help but think every generation thinks they've gotten the shortest straw. Jeff, I think it's a great question. Overall, I think you should be pessimistic. I think that for the second time in modern American history, a generation just about to enter the workplace or in the middle of college is going to be graduating into an economic recession or an economic depression. I've got no faith that Washington, no matter whether Biden or Trump wins, is going to deliver the structural needs that they need to in order to form up that economy, that all of the structural factors that inhibit family formation, wealth creation, upward mobility, social mobility, 
general aggregate happiness for millennials and Gen Z are going to remain constant, and that all of this is going to lead to a very different America in 20 years, given the political and economic conditioning that we've all gone through, kind of in the same way that the Great Depression changed the political outlook of everybody who ever lived through that. I think this is the starkest divide um, for our future, and I think that you should be pessimistic about it, but that doesn't mean that you can rule out your optimism and that, look, millions of us out there have been affected by this pandemic Marshall and I were definitely kind of affected by it in vague ways through the 2008 economic recession. We were just entering into college, and it really was the true bifurcation of class lines among America that began in the early 2000s. So I think that all of those things are going to compound into specific political moments, but I'm not going to promise you the change is coming anytime soon. What do you think, Marshall? Yeah, so I think I appreciate, Jeff, you sort of acknowledging that this sort of analysis can be cynical because something that's increasingly distressing me, and I'm going to talk about this on our Tuesday episode, is there's this class of political commentator, increasingly online, very on Twitter, who's spending this sort of really difficult moment doing nothing but promoting cynicism. So sort of, it's one thing to, as Sagar, I think, just did it in good faith, articulate ways that the system isn't very effective. It's another thing to go around and saying that system's really broken. Your only response is to not engage in the system because that literally what results in nothing changing. Uh, if you only think that our system is corrupt beyond redemption and you only basically think that there's nothing that can be done about it, what you're basically just endorsing is some version of the status quo. So it's important to think you could sort of do things differently. But as sort of a late stage millennial, I think the thing that I would say that Gen Z is most certainly getting screwed on is just sort of a lack of like functioning governing ability. This isn't a situation where even in, even in even in, you know 2008 2009 there was a stimulus package that was passed there was some form of financial reform whether you liked it or not there was an auto bailout there was sort of the last semblance of I think the 20th century governing system being able to work and I think that what you're just sort of graduating to now is a system that really just does not work as it's currently constituted so the key thing for you and for anyone else I think is to engage in the system rather than just sort of assuming the solution is dropped out, become an inconsequential third-party voter, or not really make that much of a difference. As always, a special thank you to the Lincoln Network for sponsoring this podcast and the work that we do. We're getting very, very close. The Reboot Conference is coming up the week after the election. I will be there. Marshall will be there. Many other friends of the show. Make sure that you check that out, rebootconference.org. And with that, let's listen. Chris Buskirk, welcome to The Realignment. Thanks. Happy to be here. Good to see you, Chris. Yeah, good to see you. So we are five days out from the election, and obviously we're going to talk about a lot of interesting polling that you're doing, this sort of closing argument, but I think a lot of our listeners would appreciate hearing a little bit about your background, what sort of got American greatness started, and where you sort of were in 2016. Yeah, so... uh... Gosh, I haven't gotten asked that question for a while. That was like the big 2016 and 17 question for me. <laughs> Very edgy, but um, yeah, yeah. So I'll just give you the uh, I'll give you the sort of the, the brief uh, bio and the kind of the the why for American greatness. But basically, um, kind of short version is when I was um, college graduate student, 
I was in Claremont, so I worked for the Claremont Institute. So I've sort of got that sort of, uh, you know, I guess, uh, educational uh, background. And um, so that was, you know, informed the way I thought about politics for a long time. And um, but I wound up not uh, pursuing politics as a career, ultimately, and just was an entrepreneur for a long time. And then in 2015, um, was sort of, I had sold a company and was sort of at trying to figure out what I wanted to do afterwards. And then there was a point, I guess, maybe late 15, when I started to think, wow, they're like, there's this uh, like crazy New York real estate developer who I just realized is actually totally serious about wanting to be president. And I had heard from a couple of people like in my private life who are, you know, very like sober sensible, uh, like small C conservative, like they're political conservatives, but they're just personally Mm -hmm. conservative people. And this would have been like August, September of 15. And they're like, wow, I really think Trump is going to do it. Like I really drawn to him. And if you knew these people, like they're professionals or whatever, they would be the least likely people you would have thought in 2015 would have thought that Trump was interesting. And so I sort, sort of started paying attention to that. And my big takeaway, I guess, at the time was, um, this is a really unique political moment and maybe a good time to get back involved in a meaningful way. And, you know, I had the, excuse me, I had the time I was at the right point career wise. And so, uh, in early 16, I got together with a couple of, uh, fellow sort of Claremont, uh, aligned people and said, you know, we should do something here. And mm. so, uh, wound up launching, uh, American greatness middle of 16, um, you know, we knew who we wanted to win at that point, uh, didn't know who would win. It was all sort of very, you know, happening in real time. And, uh, so we launched in the summer of 16 and it's, um, you know, it's just been like a, a ride ever since. Certainly. Chris, one thing I think would be interesting for people to hear is that anytime anyone asks me, they're like, what is the intellectual, you know, Trumpism look like? And obviously, you know, I have to point to your publication, you know, Julius Krein's American Affairs, a few other things, Tucker Carlson's show, maybe. And these are the things that I can point to as concrete. As somebody who represents that themselves, how do you view it in terms of Trump the man? Do you view yourself as adherent to an ideology, which Trump espoused in 2016? Or do you view it to connected to Trump the politician, the man, and continue to keep that as your mission going forward, even whatever happens in this election? Trump uh, was interesting and ultimately won um, and continues to be uh, the most compelling um, candidate because he talked about things that are um, that nobody else wanted to talk about. You know, that's a phrase I've used. I didn't make it up, unfortunately. I read it, but I don't know who made it up first. was like, the, we had this bipartisan fusion party. Right. And everybody, there were, you know, there were certain sort of pieties um, that everybody agreed with, with if you were within that ecosystem. And, but it was totally different than what most people in like, you know, the, you know, deplorables or normies or, you know, interior Americans or whatever was actually important for those people. And, you know, one of the things that I've tried to think through is, um, I, what I, I mean, this is going to sound like a contradiction. Maybe it is, but how to be less ideological in some things. Um, you know, and it may be, I kind of come to the conclusion, it makes the, you got to marry your ideology with, uh, the material world. 
right? So the you know the Marxists always uh, want to be materialist, and the conservatives always want to be idealist in some way, and that's neither one seems right. Um, your, it would, your your theory has to have a practical application that actually benefits people, and so I come back to um, well, what does what is it? That, what do we actually want? Right. You know, and when you talk about politics, it's a, you know, the questions are like basically who is going to rule and what do they want? Mm -hmm. And the, uh, the conservative version of that is always something like, uh, liberty, um, maybe virtue is another version of that. Um, and then sort of the left-wing version of it is equality or justice. Um, that's, you know, that, right. But, um, I don't, I mean, sure, those all sound great, right? But it's, but okay, now what? <laughs> like we've all, now we've all agreed to this piety, but now what are we supposed to actually do? And so I, so that's why I've tried to um, think, well, what is this, what are these, what does the, the ideology actually look like in practice? And I think, well, um, we want, uh, we, we want a nation that is um, secure from, you know, foreign threats. Uh, we want um, a nation that has, uh, you know, the, that has a high capacity for collective action, um, and we, you know, that's sort of at the at a at a high level, at a national level. At the the personal version of it is though, is that we want um, a nation that uh, where families are being formed and children are being had in a way, you know, in sufficient numbers to carry on uh, the civilization that we have here. Um, and we want people to be physically healthy. You know, I mean, these are just sort of like basic things that are essential to life. We want the, what I always call the pre-political institutions Mm -hmm. to be strong, vibrant, vital, thriving. You know, what are those? It's uh, religious institutions. It's the family. And if you have those things, you have a pretty healthy society and you've, uh, you've managed to concretize some of these abstractions. And then you can start to think more clearly about, okay, how do we, how do we go about doing those things? But you have to be really clear about what it is you want. And um, I don't know that, that Donald Trump thinks about it very, you know, um, exactly in those terms, but he was sort of talking about the first derivative of those things, like securing the border, raising wages, you know, um, bringing manufacturing back. Those were things that actually would make a material difference Mm -hmm. in people's lives. And it's why you saw, you know, you you sort of had the Obama-Trump vote crossover voter. It's why you had, you know, especially in those Rust Belt states, you had people maybe who hadn't voted or whatever, the, the old Reagan Democrats, or at least maybe their kids voting for Trump. Um, because they're like, oh yeah, like, yeah, that's actually what I need. This is why I hate politics is because everybody's talking about stuff that's up in the air. This guy's saying like, I want, you know, I want to, I want you to be able to get a good manufacturing job in Michigan that pays 30 bucks an hour. Yeah. So that's a good, and obviously there's a, to your point about whether or not Trump would articulate things quite that way. Like that's an important sort of thing to note, but I think there's the immediate thing that someone's going to sort of think about in this situation is there's the 2016 version of Trump, right? And then there's the 2020 version of Trump mm-hmm. who's running re-elect for re-election after having governed for four years and who also isn't running against Hillary Clinton. Cause I think especially if the poll, and I, and I will get into polling in a bit, but if the majority of, if, if the election next week goes the way the majority of polls indicate it will go, 
I think an underlying dynamic that a lot of people who were sort of interested in the new right undercounted in after 2016 was how much everything had to do with Hillary Hillary Clinton as being the perfect foil for Trump. And for a lot of people, it wasn't simply that Trump was articulating populist nationalism in a new way, but it was just that Hillary Clinton, after 30 years on the scene, was just sort of the worst person to represent the status quo you could sort of imagine. Um, there's a world where, where I think President Obama could have been as neoliberal as he was, and you could have articulated everything you just said, and he still would have handily beat Trump. So how do you just think about that dynamic um, as we're sort of going into this election? It's, a, you know, the sort of 16 versus 20 version. Is that what you mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the, the 16 version, I think that you there's part of it that's absolutely right, which is that, you know, there is um, Hillary Clinton was just so distasteful to a lot of people and she was very a very easy person to dislike and so there's a the part of that made it um I, you know i i was i was about to say part of it made it easier for trump but that's probably objectively true um mm-hmm. but gosh it seems like you know sort of pollyannish four years ago after you know uh, until like a week after the election everybody's like no trump can't win and then now here we are four years later going no I mean, no it was easy because of hillary clinton it wasn't easy but the point is still the same which is that you know she, there she had a um you know hillary clinton had been very much front and center in public life and had a reputation for uh corruption um that that was widely known even if people disagreed with it obviously democrats thought she was doing great I think um, maybe they were just in on the grift or whatever, but um, that that definitely helped to say you know all the, like all the locker up chants, and then there was the Clinton Foundation stuff, and then there was the you know the bleach bits of her of her emails and all those things. And it just played into a long running narrative about the Clintons, and that was uh, that was helpful. Uh, you know, the stuff we find out in 2020 is that, you know, <laughs> I, is that like the Bidens were trying to do the same thing, but being like lower IQ, they 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 did the same thing, but they weren't as good at it as the Clintons. So, Chris, I think that's interesting. Let's talk about this in the context of Trump himself. A couple days out from the election, your organization has gotten a lot of attention for having, I would say, polls that are not within the rest of the mainstream, they're certainly not looking in that direction. Could you maybe just explain to the audience why that phenomenon is? What are the different techniques that you are using? Why do you think that that is superior to the rest of the polling industry? Go ahead. Yeah, so, I mean, let me just, uh, let me, I guess I'll start with some context here, and that is, um, you know, I'm not a pollster. I don't do. I, I don't. I don't personally do the polling. Um, having said that, though, just you know, I had talked earlier about my, um, you know, my sort of professional business life. Uh, that was a big parts of that were actually dependent upon being able to do a lot of accurate statistical modeling. So mm-hmm. um, I can, and that was helpful because what my goal was when we decided we wanted to do some polling was. We just wanted to find people who we thought, A, were smart, were honest, um, and and didn't hate Trump. Um, and, and they don't have to be pro-Trump. I don't care. what I, But what I didn't want was somebody who was just, you know, basically had a dog in the fight. You know, regardless yes. of who they, you know, I didn't want somebody who was like just a rabid partisan. And um, and so when we went out to find who we wanted to uh, work with, it was very important to find people who, you know, sort of fit those criteria. But the, the sort of the where the rubber meets the road for any pollster is the, is um, 
is their model and then their ability to uh, survey people who fit into the model. And because the model is everything, you know, in a lot of ways, because you either, what you try and do is you try and model the electorate um, as accurately as you can, the actual electorate that you're predicting is going to show up on election day or in this environment, you know, at least four, from four weeks up to election day and then on election day too. And then they need to be able to execute and, and survey people who fit into that model. Um, and so that's like that for every pollster, that is the, that like that's essential. Like if you are modeling that the electorate is going to be, you know, I don't know, a 75% affluent uh, white female liberals, right? The, uh, the AWFLs, you're going to mm-hmm. get a certain outcome. You just are, right? I mean, but so what you got to do, and you got to do this on a state-by-state basis, and you got to try and figure out like, you know, who voted in 18, who voted in 16, you know, who voted, it, it gets harder as you go back further. But what you're trying to do is figure out who is going to vote in 2020. Is it, you know, it's going to be, you know, you have your demographic indicators just based on race, you have a party, you have sex, you have education levels, all of these things. And, you know, it's, I mean, it, there's people, how do I want to say this? People, I, uh, especially you see this in the media, want to um, want to treat polls like it's uh, like it's hard science, like this is chemistry. It's not okay. Mm-hmm. It, it is there is an art to it, um, and that is uh, that's why you got to take a lot of these polls, especially the commentary on the polls, with a huge grain of salt because they never want to recognize that there is an art to it. There's the science aspect is just you know trying to do the math on the model it's a person making a decision on what that model looks like. And so um, we, you know, we found people need, you know, we said, look, you come up with your model, show it to us. If it's something that we think is rough, you know, not crazy, you know, we're, because I had no, in, I, I want to make this clear. Like I had no input on the model other than mm-hmm. to say, show it to us. We want to, we want to see it's kind of passes the sniff test, but you're, but this is what you do. And um, so, you know, that's basically where we think um, we're going to find that the uh, the polling that we've done um, is more accurate than a lot of the polling that is out there. It's like, you know, today there's an ABC Washington Post poll of Wisconsin that says that Biden is leading by 17. There is no planet on which that is accurate. Sure. Just, it's just not true. Um, and you know, th- that means that Trump is underperforming Wisconsin by 18 points versus 2016, you know, and it's some of the stuff it's like, it's like laughable. And so you wonder like, are they just bad at this? Are they gaslighting everybody? Is this a psyop? Like there are they political partisans who are trying to game some of the averages that are out there. What are they doing? I don't know the answer, but what I do know is that Biden's not winning Wisconsin by 17. It's just not a credible response you know it's not a credible output from from a poll so do your polls have trump winning then so our so i'll give you like i'll give you an example so we released a florida poll yesterday um we had done one i guess we released it i think it's 11 days ago um you know same pollster same model same methodology had trump down like 2.8 i think um that back then, uh, the one we released yesterday had Trump up four. It's a big mm-hmm. swing. Um, is um, you know now I guess number one is was that number two weeks ago a hundred percent right? You know, no, I guess I want to say none of these polls are a hundred percent right. You're trying to get as close as you can, 
right? So yes. like I would like what part of what I will try to tell people is just to demystify what polls are in the first place. Um, so that's number one. Number two is like, okay, if that, if we think that's true, if we think the, uh, they're basically, you know, mostly getting it right, you know, what changed? Um, and so that's where it's interesting to look at the underlying, um, data and to see, well, okay, what was it that changed in that poll? And really you could identify it to two groups in the Florida poll, which is that, um, Trump was, and we've seen this across the board, Trump was underperforming with women and he was underperforming with over 65 voters in general. And in both cases, he didn't take the lead with them, but he closed that gap. And that was enough to put him hmm. back, uh, back in the lead. I find this all, I, 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 that's one of the reasons we really wanted to have you on. Cause I was like, we got to talk to somebody who's got just polls, which are different. I think one thing though, which is that as an intellectual person who agrees with many of the reasons why, and I, I find yourself in total agreement with the things that you articulated about making things real for people's lives and making the pre-political institution stronger is itself now what the new rights political project is all about. If Trump were to win, or actually, let, let's just step back. From an electoral prospect, how has his governance record lined up with the things that motivated you to that motivated you to start your organization to espouse this political ideology and to align it with Trump himself like how has that played out in your view because i would say i would say it's you know pretty mixed bag some of the things that i cared about a lot um absolutely did not happen mostly on the economic front i think on the social front i think he he definitely did deliver but that the economic part was a huge reason why so many of these Obama Trump voters even came over to him in the first place. What's your perspective on that heading into the election five days out? So I think um, you know when you dig into some of the policy, I you know I agree with the basic statement. You know it's a mixed bag. Um, in general, I think I think Trump's done pretty well. Um, so, <laughs> and I guess I would add to that better than anybody else who was running in 2016 as a Republican would have done on the issues that matter to me, or I think maybe to you or to sort of new, the new right people definitely has performed better. Are there, uh, are there places where I wish he had done more or maybe, you know, he had didn't do anything or whatever. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, but yeah. you know, how much I, I also temper my expectations of, uh, of, of whoever, you know, whoever I'm supporting but here's the here's the bigger thing is that you know you know as somebody who you know is obviously involved in this every day like i've got like a very like I've, in my mind i've got this super detailed list of like policies that i really would like to see enacted and that i think would be good things um and i will continue to say why well, i think those things are good and would be helpful and be good for people um but the single biggest thing that I think Trump does, and he's done this really, really well in a way that nobody else on the scene today could do, is that is that he exposes the absolute intellectual and moral bankruptcy of the elite class that presumes to govern this country. And that is, I think, a profoundly important role that he plays because it what he's doing is he's opening people's eyes to the fact that, you know, we don't have expertise, we have credentialism. You know, we don't have a, a, uh, a publicly minded, publicly interested elite. What we have is like this parasitic class that's trying to figure out how, just how do they get theirs. 
you know, and to the extent that he exposes that, which I think he does very well, um, that is an extremely important thing um, because it sort of, it helps clear the decks uh, so that there can be something new that's built, uh, partially while he's in, in office. And then, of course, after he leaves, whether that be in a few months or a few years. So this is this is fascinating. I really like the way you articulated that because I think it gets to a key debate within sort of this broader worldview, which is that I can buy the critique. Uh, I could buy the idea that he sort of opened up. Let's say he shifted the Overton window, changed the sort of chess pieces in fifteen sixteen. But I don't think anyone could look at the rise of Joe Biden and could look at the post COVID world and not even post because we're still in it and think that anti-credentialism, I think, has been advanced as a project. Uh, and I think that the other sort of problem here, and this is what um, I'll let you respond, but also sort of raise this question, which is that I think people on the right who support Trump should be asking themselves, people who aren't hacks, right? And, and you're not a hack, like you care about these ideas. Um, if Trump held different ideas, I don't think you'd be supporting Trump. So the question is, what is the effect Trump has on these ideas? So for example, let's take immigration. Immigration was for example, with the border wall of water sort of things, the perfect example of an issue that you could argue that that elite credential class was not able to deal with properly. But now four years into Trump's presidency, support for expanding immigration is the highest it's been in 30 years. Um, there's a reason why one of the few areas of policy that Joe Biden is going to be very precise on is his support of comprehensive immigration reform, is his sort of views on DACA. And it's because that viewpoint has become newly, newly popular because of the way that Trump sort of governed. So how do we just sort of think about the role that Trump plays in those debates? Yeah, I mean, there's uh, there, there's a there is a view that says that. So Trump is for um, Trump. Trump is for uh uh, like basically enforcing our immigration laws, controlling the border, um, reducing the amount of both legal and illegal immigration, and therefore he's poisoned the well on that. I don't subscribe uh, to that view. Um, quick, quick, kind of quick correction to my statement. It's yeah. not that those. It's it's. I'm not talking about the policies per se, right? Like because you just articulate. Like I get what you're saying there, but I'm saying like the way that he does this. So the way that the Department of Homeland Security incompetently, from I think a policy and a PR perspective, manages sort of like the border crisis issue, especially with sort of like the children, especially the way that these like suburban like white voters who were sort of who are basically in the background of this entire conversation, the way they sort of see that happen and they then recoil against that policy. So I, that's more so less the policies precisely and more just the way that he goes about doing them. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a couple of things I think that are going on there. One is that, um, you know, some of these policies like this came up in the debate last the last week, like the cage, the whole cages thing. Well, that, I mean, look, that was really was a policy that was begun under um, uh, under Biden. And some of it is just that this becomes a media driven narrative. Um, and it takes on a life of its own precisely because it is something that that is being done in the Trump administration, even if it was done in a prior administration, too. When it was done by the prior administration, either the people ignored it or whatever. And now that Trump is doing it, it's sort of like, you know, it's it's evil. Um, it's, I think the bigger like the bigger issue is the one that you raised, which is like the one of competence. Uh, how are how are these agencies executing on these things? And this is like, this is in a way like 
gosh, this is this is a huge issue for conservatives that, you know, mm-hmm. I sort of have sketched out something I want to write on this, but I won't do it till next year because the election has sucked up every <laughs> possible second and every bit of oxygen. Um, but like conservatives have this um, like it's in the conservative like DNA, which is that, um, you know, government, government bad, small government good. Like, I, you know, I yes. basically I, I subscribe to that. Uh, and to a certain extent, um, but that goes, you know, that then goes into the point, goes to the point of parody, which is like, if you work for the government, you're a hack and like, you're necessarily incompetent and like, you know, all the DMV jokes or the post office jokes, right? Those things are true, right? Like go to the DMV, it's probably, it's usually pretty badly run and, you know, you have to wait for four hours just to like, you know, get a replacement license or something. But, you know, I don't know, try calling your bank or your, your airline. And tell yeah, me you get right. a better experience. Like the, you know, the the experience <laughs> you have with big business is, is not any better, and in a lot of cases, is worse. And so, you know, like I guess my point here is, is that yeah, I mean, a lot of these things are being done uh, incompetently. But conservatives have been saying for fifty years, um, and, and basically have been memeing it the reality that if you're a conservative and you're smart and you're ambitious, you should, there's no way you should work in government. It's, you know, it's basically, it's only the slobs who do that. And so when you drive, when you drive smart people out of that, out of government, what do you expect? Right? Not that there aren't any smart people in government, but the point is, is that we should be, you know, we should want good, smart people who are competent, who could execute on these things. We should want yeah. them in government as, instead of just saying like, I don't know why, do, you know, why do we, why don't we have the only the four, why don't we only have the four departments that are called out in the original constitution? I mean, like I get that to a certain extent, but like. That's, that's not, not some, that's not some, like, <laughs> yeah, get back like, to me when you can do that. In the meantime, can we just right. run this thing competently? Yes. Chris, you're identifying probably my chief beef with the conservative movement is, I mean, look at the administration. I mean, two, if you care about immigration, two of the things you should care a lot about were DACA and the census. And both of those things were lost at the Supreme Court out of sheer idiocy at the executive bureaucratic level. There's just no other way. To describe it, any competent administration would have been able to follow through on that. I think in some cases trade, many of the ways that they have gone about implementing some of the things that they've tried have just been rank incompetence, which again, is just, this is the the real question. And one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you is there is a feeling among some people, I'm not saying it's our view, that if you care a lot about these issues, that you would have to wait it out and kind of wait until somebody who can emerge, um, who's actually competent and capable of doing this without poisoning the well of public opinion to actually enact that agenda on the front. And ergo, it might be better if Trump just lost. And then, of course, I think there's probably a view more aligned with your own and maybe more emblematic of like the Michael Anton essay of Flight 93, which is that, no, that's ludicrous, which is that anything that uh, you get even the worst possible outcome with Trump is better than a democratic administration. Could you articulate that view and kind of counter the argument that I laid out? Yeah, I mean, like, there's a couple different versions, like the of of the of the other side, which is you know the, the sort of the accelerationist version, which yeah. is you know um, this like the trajectory here is towards uh, destruction. So can we just get it over already? Um, mm-hmm. And that way, like you know, let. 
I'm the, you know, that their version is like, I didn't start the fire, but I'm not putting it out. And I just wish it would burn down because I just want to get back to the business of rebuilding something that's better. And, um, yeah, that's one version. The other version is, um, you know, kind of like Trump's not as Trump's not as confident as he like, even though he talks about policies I like. Um, he's kind of icky or whatever. That's always sort of underlying it. He's crass, and I don't. That's distasteful to me. And so, gosh, I'm just waiting. You know, like where's Lancelot? Like, you know, I want, you know, I want the, I want somebody on a white horse. And both of those are wrong. Right. I yeah. mean, you know, it's um, we live in a fallen world, you know, so let's not let the the the, uh, the the perfect be the enemy of the good. You know, I just fundamentally don't think you ever um, you don't you don't win by losing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there are times obviously where like there is certainly such a thing as a strategic retreat or there are times where in history where you can look and say, oh, they suffered that defeat. But it, I guess as it worked out. Um, so X, X, Y, and Z happened and it, maybe it worked out for the better. I, you cannot tell those things in advance, right? I can't tell you um, that if Trump loses, somehow somebody else is going to merge and it's, you know, and it, all of a sudden it's going to be magically better. And so, you know, you just have to, ex, you just have to, I think, have a, a certain faith in human agency and in the power of human action and do the best, like you're trying to win. We have to be trying to win and to build now. And if the accelerationists are right uh, on their big point, which is that, you know, this is, you know, there's like sort of entropy in the system or it's already, you know, which I guess is true in every system. Well, okay, but I don't need to, I don't need to speed it up because I don't have that much, like, I don't have that much knowledge or capacity to figure those things out. So in the meantime, um, let's try and do the best with, with what we have. Mm-hmm. So, and this is something that we sort of, and everyone has sort of had to accustom themselves to, but if we're talking about political realignments, the most important realignment over the past four years has really been transfer um, of sort of education and class as being the most sort of defining thing that drives your voting decision. That's something that I think Trump leaned into and definitely in its own way has sort of shifted things. So how should the GOP moving forward, Trump or not, be thinking about that reality that under a sort of more American greatness or at least Trumpist agenda, you are going to see a situation where you know, it's probable that the suburbs of Northern Virginia, that H.W. Bush, Ronald Reagan, you know, John McCain, et cetera, it sort of competed for are just gone forever. That states like Georgia and Texas are more competitive. That Philadelphia, you know, Bucks County is not going to be your centerpiece. How should the right think about that dynamic? Because sort of the people within the GOP, that I think would be opposed to sort of many of the viewpoints we say on this show and would be opposed to you, would simply say that you're leaning too far into sort of this working class agenda. You're going to get us killed in the suburbs and we can't actually put together a governing coalition. How do you sort of think about that dynamic? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, like, so the the basic, uh, well, one of the ba- one of the frames that I think is accurate to think about how, what the coalitions are right now is it's sort of the, um, you know, it's it's a it's elites plus uh, elite aspirants, or you might call them the professional managerial class. So, I mean, mm-hmm. the terminology can can get confusing but we use pmc here just to be clear. <laughs> um yeah pmc is fine i mean i would yeah uh, i would say pmcs are basically you know in a way like uh, demi elites or elite aspirants or whatever yeah. um so you have that you have that class 
and they're broadly aligned with with the lumpen proletariat plus um, some sort of uh, you know I guess there's there's some like there's some sort of uh, other groups that have come together in that in in that um, coalition who think that they wouldn't get power otherwise American Muslims maybe are part of that um, that's always been puzzling to people because American Muslims are like you know they're sort of small C conservative and family oriented and so a lot of uh, a lot of uh, like right wing Americans think like gosh that would be there's a natural mm-hmm. that seems like a natural yeah. bond like on a lot of like things we would tend to agree and that may actually be something that happens but there's you know there's a perception i think in a lot of the not not all by the way but a lot of the muslim community know the democrats have our interests and so we don't mind aligning politically with people with whom we disagree but the point is is that you sort of have the you know, you sort of have the um, you know the elites demi elites pmcs plus uh plus uh, a coalition broadly underclass but then some of these other small groups that had, that kind of hitched their wagon to that political coalition that's like, and they are all aligned against like a broad middle class and you know when i think about the broad middle it's you know basically it's it's the working class and you know the middle class put together the distinction mm-hmm. there is hard to hard to make for me um and so i think for republicans um or conservatives not always not always the same thing you, <laughs> you sort of have to lean into that reality um and say and say you know this is a middle class party um we need to i think make a real attempt to find the elites that are aligned um and because you need elites who can govern you need elites uh who do the things elites do which is run the institutions right if you're running Mm -hmm. a major institution by definition you just became an elite or you know adjacent at any rate Uh, but the source of political power for conservatives is going to be the middle class um and we need to, but you, you know, we, the, the, the problem with populist parties a lot of times is that they fizzle out because they don't have, uh, they don't have a governing class that is, uh, that is associated with them. Yes. And, and that's the, that's a place where, uh, conservatives have a sort of, uh, an ideological weakness because, uh, we've been taught to revere the founding era in this country, which we can, which we can do and should do without thinking that if we just win a couple more elections, it's going to be 1789 again, right? right? That right, that social structure doesn't exist, right? So we do need to have uh, a class that is that uh, that governs and runs institutions, but is aligned with the broad middle. Yeah, it's funny, Chris. I'm thinking about this just in terms of I remember when Trump said on the campaign trail, I thought it was a very poignant moment. He said in 2016, it's not the conservative party. It's the Republican Party. And of course, that drove the, you know, the professional GOP establishment mad. And you're also getting to something that I said once, which is very controversial uh, for a lot of leftists who probably listen to this podcast, who watch my show on Rising, is I was like, look, I'm not anti-elite by definition, like all the time. I'm anti the current elite. I'm like, I think right. our current elite sucks um, and that we need to like reform it. And I, I think that, you know, there's going to be some class division in America and in a Western capitalist society and it can be more equitable and we should talk about that. Here's the real question is if Trump wins or loses, it will still be 
one of the great civil wars within the Republican Party about what his 2016 or 2020 victory meant or what his 2016 victory and 2020 loss meant. Obviously, I think you know which both sides you and I are going to be on. But the dynamic that I see is that if Trump loses is that they are going to try and paint a narrative that he lost because of his positions on trade and immigration, where I would say he probably had much more to do with his loss, with his passage of the GOP tax cut in 2017 and with just the general lack of economic stimulus and the coronavirus pandemic together. What is the most effective way for people who are like-minded as you and I in order to prevail in that civil war? Because I see on their side hundreds of billions of dollars in capital, the entire GOP establishment machine, you know, friends within the media and more, and a class of people who never really liked Trump all that much in the first place, and to the extent that they did, viewed him more as a guy who they could get their stuff done underneath rather than as somebody who they actually aligned with. I know that's a lot, but I just want to throw it all at you. No, they no, look, the um if uh if Trump loses you know parentheses god forbid mm-hmm. um then you know no, the morning of november 4th basically the the old sort of gop e the uh uh you know sort of the the old bushies the neocons the nikki haley's yes let me say that again the nikki haley's who rode the trump <laughs> train in or, for it's personal not even a benefit by the way that's just What's that? outright i said it's not even a subtweet you just not even, not even I, sub- I respect that i respect that more yeah not, it's not <laughs> yeah. even a subtweet um it's <laughs> no these are the people who who will some will, will say it really explicitly some of them will yeah. just go about it but will say it implicitly but basically they will go back to bushism uh, they will go back to uh, sort of being the uh, the right liberal party as opposed to being the conservative party. And it'll be, uh, you know, it'll be back to, you know, the the bad trade deals. It'll be back to importing cheap labor to undercut American workers. It'll be, I mean, it'll be back to foreign, you know, military misadventures. Uh, they're very extremely profitable for a lot of people. Uh, and I don't just, and I'm not don't mean like uh, Boeing, though, that's true, too. What I mean, though, is it's, they're very profitable for a lot of people in D.C. Yes. Um, you know, so they people make money off of that. And then they and they sort of wrap that in, you know, but democracy, you know, track record, please. You know, mm-hmm. you, what are you like? Oh, and 40. Uh, but please spend <laughs> trillions more. Uh, um, this is like one of my favorite. Uh, this is one of my favorite subtweets of uh, of those people. Is uh, and like the State Department still does it on their State Department account as they talk as they talk about like every you know every couple of weeks they've got somebody else there after it's Belarus this week and then it's uh, you know it's some other country then the following week and I always. Well, I, when I see it, I will I will always subtweet them and ask them like you know uh, how's how's Juan Guaido's presidency going because um, you know Venezuela. last I last I heard yeah, we right. were last I heard he was the, actually the legitimate <laughs> the legitimately elected president of Venezuela or whatever. Um, anyway, point being is that it'll just be back to you know if they have any uh, say about it and. As you say, there there are a lot of them. They're very well financed, and it'll be back to business as usual unless action is taken. I think that the uh, I think one of the big action items for um, I think one of the big, big action items for us is to get start getting in front of candidates and existing elected Republicans with you know sort of 
focus group data, polling data um, on issues and say, you know what, this, we know that this is what everybody in the 202 area code is telling you. Um, but in actuality, uh, here's what your voters think. Here's what your yes. voters want. Um, and, the, and, and it's not going back. Like if you want to be the junior partner in the Democrat led government, just say it now. But if you actually want to do something positive for the country, if you want to win again, you need to put it together a coalition because the, the, uh, the, uh, the GOP coalition is a, is a, is just a straight electoral loser. I mean, not only yes. is it bad for the country, but it's an electoral loser. It'll just continue shrinking. Mm -hmm. So for the last question, I think the immediate question would be for you, if Trump does win re-election, which is basically what a lot of this show today is premised on, what are going to be your number one agenda items from sort of an American greatness perspective? Sorry, is that if he does or doesn't? If he does, does. because just to, just to add some editorial onto this, because something that I think is concerned a lot of people on the right is that you're going to see a Trump who is unmoored. And I don't just mean unmoored in the sort of sense of, oh, he's going to, you know, do weird things of Kim Jong-un, but more in the sense of he'll be more and more captured by sort of deficit hawkery, sort of people who tell him, you know, President Trump, the way to own the libs is to privatize Social Security. Oh, President Trump, the way to own the libs is actually to, you know, go for a second round of tax cuts because they would hate mm -hmm. that, right? So I think that's something that a lot of people are sort of concerned about so what's your sort of agenda and what would you say to people who are going to try to sort of exploit that space because once again that's clearly what happened in 2017 with the with the tax cuts and health care plan instead of infrastructure so we've sort of seen this um film already it doesn't go very well especially from a midterms perspective so what's your agenda look like to finish this up yeah so um i i'm, I'm gonna do policy second because my my number one uh, item is actually that he rebuild the Republican Party in the in the image of America first, mm -hmm. and that means that he needs he needs to start really staffing the party. You know, um, a lot of the people who are there now probably will want to leave anyway, and so it's time to start putting his people in control of the levers of power because what that will do, <clears throat> excuse me, is that will help to. Um, you know, they'll, they'll, that, that will help to cement the legacy and to bring new candidates into the party in, in 2022 and 2024 when they're doing, you know, candidate uh, recruitment. We'll be getting the right people running in these districts and it'll, it will change the trajectory of the institutional party itself. Related to that, um, I think that there are people who would be good hires for Trump for the West Wing um, who, for various reasons, didn't go in in the first term, who I think would go in in the second term. Um, so, so I think he needs to get other people who are smart, who, are, who would be loyal to him and wouldn't leak. Um, you know, I, wa I want to say one thing, I guess. A lot of, like, America First people have a lot of criticisms for Jared. And there are places, there's, there's important policy places where I disagree with some of the things that uh, Jared Kushner has done. But the thing that Jared Kushner has done that where he deserves credit is that he's been loyal to his father-in-law and to my knowledge has not been one of those people who's been backstabbing him um, or leaking on him. I could be wrong on that, but that's my understanding. And this uh, points to something that's important, which is that uh, is that Trump has had a hard time implementing policy because he hasn't had people who've been loyal to him. 
Yes. Um, and so he, there, but those people exist, right? There are people that he could bring in, I think, and, and I think he could get a very good West Wing staff in a second administration. So that's sort of, that, that's sort of on the personnel aspect. When it comes to uh, policy, you said infrastructure, that's a big deal. Right. Yes. I think, you know, that would be it would be a it would be a very heavy lift. I would hope that it would be able to get done, but he should use political capital uh, to do that uh, immediately. I mean, you know, there's lots of, there's substantive reasons why the infrastructure just needs to be rebuilt. I mean, go to LAX or go to JFK. Um, and they're like, they're basically national embarrassments, uh, among other things, you know, there's all kinds of other infrastructure and it would, uh, uh, they, not to just be, the jet setting class. <laughs> there, we have other concerns too. <laughs> yeah. Gosh. I mean, yeah, no, I mean, look, roads, bridges, power plants, you know, yes. power transmission, the grid, I mean, all of these things need to be rebuilt. And, you know, it, th- that is like, that is one of those things because it, first of all, it's a multi-trillion dollar project that probably takes a decade or more and it as a result it becomes a big national project and doing big national projects to go back to something i said earlier like what's one of the marks of a successful society it's a high capacity for collective action and if the and if you know everybody wants to say well, let's go to the moon or let's go to, the, to mars fine i mean I, i'm for it i guess uh, because there's things that go along with it that with those projects that are really good the same thing could be said of a, of a huge infrastructure uh, initiative in this country is it becomes a big national project. It's very tangible. You know, there's this whole discussion of like, you know, bits versus atoms, like all, Mm -hmm. you know, all the, uh, all the innovation has been in bits, not in atoms. Yeah. I mean, bridges and all those sorts of things, you know, that's very like, I don't know, bridges are very like 4,000 BC people have been crossing water for a long time. (laughs) Um, but it's nice to have new ones. It's nice to have ones that look good and that, uh, carry and that where you're not getting stuck in traffic, it's great to have a power grid that's efficient. And those are tangible things that I think would be, that's the sort of project that kind of, gosh, it sort of galvanizes the country together. So that anyway, I think that's a big thing. I think that Trump could also take the next step, um, on trade. Um, his instincts on trade have been very good. Um, the policies have been very good too, but you know, when we talk about how do you raise, uh, worker wages, you know, how do you make it possible for, for instance, a family, a middle-class family to, uh, to live a middle-class life on a single wage? Well, you have to raise wages. How do you raise wages? Reduce foreign competition, right? You know, it's, uh, you know, it make it pro- profitable to build manufacturing here again. And that means, uh, you have to exclude some, uh, some imports, uh, that goes against sort of the free market fundamentalism of the of the libertarians who took over the Republican parties, at least that part of our policy uh, making apparatus. But that would be something that uh, that I think would be very beneficial to uh, to to rebuilding uh, to rebuilding the middle class in this country. And there 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 was an opportunity earlier this year, which I think is um, was missed, but could be picked up again in a second administration. Um, one of the things we found out. Uh, all of us in March and April and May is that like, hey, we can't even make N95 masks in this country. Hey, we don't make any antibiotics in this country. Oh, we all, P.S., we don't make the precursor chemicals for the antibiotics in this country either. So even if we wanted to, we couldn't do it. Um, I make that a priority. I mean, and I mean, legally make that a requirement, for instance, that, that some of those things have to be manufactured here and start and say, what, you know, going back to our polls, there was a question we were that we did a bunch of polling on state level polling. We did it, you know, we're doing all the ballot test questions, but on issues, we said, would you, um, we said, 
I'm trying to, I want to get the phrasing right, but we said, would you be more likely or less likely to support a candidate who had a plan to make the United States self-sufficient in the production of food, energy, and healthcare, um, like healthcare goods or something like that. Um, and it's like an 85% yes question. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's really kind of funny though, the way the, some of the breakout is, is because non-Republican groups, like non-traditionally Republican groups, um, answer yes at a higher level than traditional Republican constituencies on that stuff. Uh, like, you know, sort of like, uh, like 50 year old, like white male is like, you know, classic, like Republican constituency is like, they say yes in general, mm-hmm. but they're at like at 60%. Whereas like, um, Hispanic woman who's 25, she's at like 90%, you know, that, like right. that demographic. And it's like a common sense thing. It's like, uh, yeah, like, of course we need to be self-sufficient <laughs> at these things. Like we need to be secure in these things. Um, and it's a place where I think it's good policy, but it's also really good politics if somebody's able to articulate that well. Quick thing here before we take you out. I think you just highlighted a very important point because sort of like obviously as, as like a black person, I'm someone who looks at a lot of the sort of generic DC outreach to minorities in a really sort of frustrated way because it's basically like, hey, like if we just take the generic policy positions that the GOP has held for 30 years and make them sort of like, quote unquote, like black and Hispanic friendly, they're like, vote for us, which is also what sort of leads to the immigration reform point. But what you're actually pointing out here is if you want to sort of expand the GOP's base, the GOP is actually going to have to change the policy priorities that you sort of get there. Like you're not going to get more black or Hispanic voters by sort of doing like tax cuts and opportunity zones, like those could be fine policies, but that's not like good politics. So I think you're getting the political dynamic that that sort of thing misses a lot. And I just, I think people should hear that more. Oh my God, Marshall. I mean, this is like one of the things that I find like so frustrating because like, a, a, like DC, like outreach to like in like, I don't know, like inner city Philadelphia would probably constitute something like, I don't know. Let's, what should we do? Should, let's do a opportunity rap about, zone. No, yeah. we'll do a it rap. A we'll, uh, we'll, we'll do a rap about corporate tax cuts. <laughs> that, 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 <laughs> hey, but to, to quick thing that may have gotten 50 cent. Um, so there is yeah, a market right. for, there right. is a tiny market and, for and, that. And, and little pump. Yeah. Yes, and little pump. <laughs> so don't undercount that strategy. It's uh, I'm like, you want to win the inner city of Philadelphia? Rebuild it. I guarantee you a lot of people there would vote for you, but sure you know, part. that's a little difficult. Uh, Chris, it's just been such a great conversation. Really appreciate your perspective, man. And uh, please keep up the great work that you were doing over at American Greatness. We appreciate you joining us. Yep, thanks. thanks. It was fun. Thanks, Chris. Talk to you later. Hey, hope you guys enjoyed the episode. As a reminder, leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you want to leave us a question with a five-star rating, we will answer it on the show. And email us at realignmentpod at gmail.com to get your question out there. We're going to be airing our episode next week on Monday instead of Tuesday. And on that Tuesday, the day of the election, we will be having a special Q&A session. So please get your questions in so we can answer those for you guys as you go about your voting election day. That's right. And as always, a special shout out to the Lincoln Network for sponsoring the work that we do here. Very, very thanks to them. And we will see you guys next week on election day. Election day.